Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloen. One of the most important books I ever read was Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert that chronicled the story of water in the arid west. From Los Angeles stealing water from the Owens Valley to the damming of nearly every western waterway by the Bureau of Reclamation and Army Corps of Engineers, it was a powerful and compelling read. Now a new book by environmental journalist Erica Geis definitely has become a worthy companion on my bookshelf. It's called Water Always Wins, thriving in an age of drought and deluge. In it, Guys tells the story of how we've tried to work against nature to control water, thus disrupting the natural water cycle and ecosystems that depend on healthy watersheds. From groundwater in California and stream restoration in Washington State, to projects in China, Africa, and the United Kingdom, Guys tells the story of water detectives, scientific investigators who are trying to find better ways to work with nature to bolster groundwater supplies and combat sea level rise in places like the San Francisco Bay. It's a fascinating journey of discovery, and the author joins us from her Bay Area home to talk about it. Erica Geis, welcome to Blue Dot. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. This is one of the most important books I've read in many years. I, I want to wow. get that out right off the top. This is a this is a book I feel like everyone should read. So uh, kudos to you for writing it. But I'd, I'd like to, before we get into the book, I'd like to find a little bit more about you. How did you get into being an environmental journalist? Well, thank you so much for that very nice comment. Um, I it's it's good to hear that because I feel like this topic is really important, and I do hope that a lot of people will read it. <laughs> and think about it. Um, I got into environmental journalism uh, through writing. I was always really interested in reading and writing and from a love of the environment. You know, when I was a kid, we spent a lot of time hiking and camping, my family. That was what we typically did on vacations. So yeah, that kind of love of nature was really um, embedded in me from an early age. And I learned to observe and to appreciate. And uh, as I got into journalism, um, I was actually really interested in all kinds of environmental issues. And early on, I was pitching a story about uh, an endangered species, I think. And an editor said to me, no one cares about that. <laughs> and wow. uh, he happened to have a special section on energy. So I ended up writing a lot about renewable energy for him. Um, and then later segued into writing more about water. First, like with the energy water nexus, you know, the amount of uh, water required to produce energy and also the amount of energy required to move in, in clean water. Um, and then I just found water so fascinating. Uh, and the more I learned, the more I realized there was to learn. And, and even now, even after having written this book, I'm still learning new things about water. Yeah, I, I learned a lot, too, from your book, which I, I deeply appreciate. Let, let's, let's get into what was the genesis of you deciding to write this book, Water Always Wins? Yeah, um, I had done a lot of stories on water issues of various kinds from, you know, pollution to drought to floods. And I just felt like this approach of collaborating with nature to better manage water, asking what water wants and 
making space for water again within our human habitats was something that was really not being given significant consideration by decision makers. A lot of times you hear things like, well, those projects are nice, but they can't be a significant part of the solution. And, you know, the thinking behind that is, is inaccurate. It's misguided. And I just felt like the real story wasn't getting enough attention. And so, you know, I had been starting to write about that in various articles, but I just felt like taking it on in book form would give me the opportunity to, to tell it in a, in a different and hopefully more compelling way. Yeah. And one of the concepts that you use in, in, is the concept of slow water. And of course, we've you know heard about slow food and things like that. Can you give us your interpretation? What does slow water mean to you? Yeah, I did name slow water with slow food in mind um, because you know the slow food movement aims to draw our attention to how our food is grown and produced and what that means for the local environment and local people. And similarly, uh, slow water is attempting to do the same thing in terms of our relationship with water and how we try to get what we need from water. In general, slow water is about reclaiming space for water's slow phases that we've eradicated with our development. That's urban sprawl, uh, industrial agriculture, and the very kind of concrete control-oriented way that we try to manage water. So that means protecting or restoring wetlands, floodplains, water towers, forests, meadows, finding space for water to slow within our cities. Um, but it's also really changing our relationship with water from this idea of control. You know, we, we tend in a dominant culture to approach water with a very, um, you know, what can it do for us mindset? It's all about humans and our, our desires. Um, and that doesn't respect water's agency and relationships. You know, it's really treating water as either a commodity or a threat. Um, whereas water has these complex relationships with soil and rock microbes, beavers and people. And when we ignore those complex systems, then we create a lot of negative consequences for ourselves. Um, slow water projects are socially just. They, they don't take water from one place and give to another. They don't protect one community while increasing risk for another community. There's a community engagement or responsibility component. So in some places that I traveled around the world, I found people who were actively managing these projects together and then sharing the resource. Um, and, you know, in a place like the United States where we have such a centralized system, it's a little hard to imagine that, although certainly people can do it on their own land. Um, but there are different levels of community engagement. Like in some cases, um, maybe a formerly industrial area alongside a river has been returned to park space. So that's a place that people can use, um, you know, when it's not flooded. And then when the waters come, it's a space for the water to slow. So maybe there are um, signs explaining what this landscape is for and what the water is doing in this area. And then the last element of slow water is that, you know, we have developed these very centralized systems in mainstream culture, uh, but slow water projects are distributed across the landscape. Um, so many, many small projects uh, from, you know, the mountaintop down to the ocean 
finding spaces for water to slow again throughout its path. Yeah, and if you look at uh, how water is engineered or used, tried to control in, in, in our state of California, where you and I live and have grown up, it's the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, dams and, you know, and then you transport the water to the cities. And it's, it's, the, it's the absolute opposite of the slow water concept, which I, you know, as I read your book, I found that to be at times, you know, just sad that we, we have so, uh, we've so engineered ourselves away from working with water to, to have a healthy place to live where water can be our partner and friend. Instead, we, you know, we just try to control it. Like you said, it's either a threat, you know, when, when there's flooding or it's a scarce commodity when you need fresh water and you can't get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think in our culture and California is, I, I call in the book, the, the apex of water engineering hubris, um, you know, the really extreme example of all of this. And there's this mentality that not only makes humans most important, and there's also this attitude of trying to optimize or, you know, have extreme efficiency in all use. So don't let any of it escape and control every last molecule but you know that way of approaching it is really ignoring all of these um, complex systems, and so there are lots of important things that happen in these systems. Um, the number one thing is by having a healthy water cycle, um, including a healthy groundwater table, which is really important. Like the surface water and groundwater, we tend to think of in California as groundwater as separate water. Uh, you know, that we can pump when surface water runs low. And that really dates back to the earliest days of agriculture in the state. But in fact, you know, surface water and groundwater are connected. They're the same water. So when you deplete groundwater, then you don't have it supplying surface water from below. And um, yeah, there's just, there's so many important things, even in terms of that groundwater supplying water to trees and plants, which make them less flammable and therefore less likely to burn in major wildfires and them playing an important role in generating local rain. So actually, you know, contributing to the desertification of, of areas by depleting this groundwater and breaking that um, system. And then, you know, another major thing about California is like, you know, a facet of slow water is that slow water is local water. And I, I mentioned that that can be an environmental justice issue. There was a, a major study over 40 years looking at big dams on rivers and found that they brought water to 20% of the world's population, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's population. So it's really a matter of, you know, environmental justice and, and the haves and have nots. And, you know, even the people who may seem fortunate, the people who benefit from getting that water, in fact, are made more vulnerable to the water cycle, particularly in a place like California, which has a long time trend of, you know, high water years and low water years. Uh, it's There's a field called sociohydrology that looks at how humans and water interact and how human actions affect water supplies. And um, there's a well-documented pattern of when you bring in water from somewhere else, uh, that just creates more demand. 
So it's very similar to the way in which, you know, you have gridlock on the freeway, so you build more lanes and it just attracts more traffic. And we see this yeah. again and again with water, like we bring in water, we build a big new reservoir, and then, you know, we authorize more development, more agriculture, et cetera. Yeah, just increasing the demand. It's it's kind of like, it's a vicious cycle, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love in your book, and, and you could almost argue that you could have an alternative title for this book, is The Water Detectives. <laughs> uh, I love that term. Uh, and you have so many interesting ones in this book. There's you know, too many for us to talk about on this program. You've got to read the book if you want to know about <laughs> all of them. But let's hit some of them. One, one of my favorite parts is right in the beginning of your book, uh, as I recall, you're in your hometown of San Francisco with somebody, and I you're on a bike ride. And noticing noticing a puddle, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's this guy named Joel Pomerantz, and he's a longtime San Francisco resident. And he's just really curious about water. And so he has spent years researching the historical places that water traveled within San Francisco. And this is a really common phenomenon in cities around the world where the mainstream development path has been to either put creeks and, and waterways and pipes and then build over them or fill them with trash and dirt and then build over them. So a lot of the natural waterways, wetlands, creeks, et cetera, in our cities are not visible to us today. And so basically this guy, Joel Pomerantz, is practicing uh, what's known as historical ecology, you know, researching where these streams were, and then trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, the utility built a pipe and so now here it is and you can almost, you know, if the traffic is light, you can hear the water underneath the manhole cover, for example. Um, so this puddle you brought up was in a park called Alamo Square Park and it's kind of famous beyond San Francisco because it was in the credits for the show Full House. Um, oh, okay. So, you know, it's like all these San Francisco Victorians with the uh, San Francisco skyline in the background. So that's Alamo Square Park. And, you know, it's a little hilltop park. Um, it's popular in the in the area. Um, but yeah, he showed me this puddle that had kind of a ring of mossy scum around it. And, you know, it was such a small thing on the pavement that I never would have noticed and he said that this water is almost always there. And it's a sign that Alamo Square uh, Park is a place with springs underneath it. And the springs are seeping continually. And that's another thing I learned in, in researching this book is, you know, we tend to think, uh, or I think like kind of the conventional wisdom is water finds the low spot, which it does, but a lot of water does seep out of the ground from hillsides and this area in San Francisco is one example of that. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with journalist Erica Guise, author of the new book, Water Always Wins. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with environmental journalist Erica Guise, author of the new book, Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. 
you know, when I say that humans have interfered with the water cycle to a really dramatic degree, and that's why we're causing some of these problems for ourselves, um, I just want to give a couple of statistics. Humans have actually filled or drained 87% of the world's wetlands. And we've dammed or diverted two thirds of the world's big rivers. And just since 1992, the land area covered by pavement and cities has doubled. So that's one of the reasons why we see this big increase in urban flooding and then also cities running out of water. Because when you have all this pavement and it floods, then you try to rush the water away and then you need it later. So then you try to bring it from somewhere else. That's why the slow water movement is looking for places for to, to kind of return these slow phases that we've eradicated with all this development. And could, could you briefly you know, describe to us what these paleo valleys are and why they're so important? Sure. So I first heard about paleo valleys several years ago when I was writing an article for Scientific American about groundwater storage and how the state of California, having dammed most rivers and not having place for additional water storage, was starting to seriously consider storing more actively storing more water underground. And in the course of that story, I interviewed uh, Dr. Graham Fogg, uh, a hydrogeologist um, from UC Davis. And I learned about something that had been his career long passion, which are these paleo valleys, which are um, underground just along the foothills of the Sierra Nevada um, between the mountains and the Central Valley. And basically, these are geological features that were formed by the ice ages. And the ones that are probably most useful for us because they are so close to the surface are the ones that were created during the last um, ice age or the last glacial cycle, which was approximately um, 10,000 to 18,000 years ago. So, you know, ice came down from the north, it sat on the Sierra Nevada, the rivers that were coming down off of the Sierra Nevada were um, flowing more intensively and also sea levels were lower. Uh, and so they carved these big canyons in the soft soil of the Central Valley. And then later in the glacial cycle, the ice kind of scraped off a lot of gravel and sand and filled these canyons with this very coarse material. So if you think about the Central Valley, um, the vast majority of it is clay soil. That's like 65 to 80%. And water does move through clay, but not, not quickly. And so, you know, California has always had these ex water extremes, droughts followed by flood years. And um, it can be hard to capture that water when it's flooding because uh, it's hard to get it underground quickly uh, without a lot of it just kind of lingering on top and flooding things. Uh, so the beauty of these paleo valleys is because they are so porous, if you can move the water on top of them, um, the water can move underground really quickly. And then it can, over a longer period of time, um, filter into the clay soils adjacent to these channels and raise the, the water table over a larger area. Yeah, and of course, you know, we're talking about the California Central Valley, 
which uh, uh, so much of the water usage in California is for agriculture mm-hmm. and, and just a massive amount. Uh, it, you know, people think about, you know, oh, sending water to the cities and wasting it that way or whatever. But uh, agriculture uses a huge amount of water. In fact, you had a line that I really appreciated in your book um, from one of your water detectives, I think, uh, driving down through the Central Valley, especially the San Joaquin Valley. It's, it's the least wild landscape imaginable. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. Uh, You know, the Central Valley uh, is dominated by the two big rivers, the Sacramento and the San Joaquin, which meet in the Delta and then head out to San Francisco Bay. And they're both fueled by uh, a number of tributaries. And in the past, before all this development, before all this control of water, they had vast floodplains, which occupied a a wide area of the valley um, for up to six months of the year where uh, there would be wetlands and and tule marshes and an incredible um, bounty of of life uh, of various kinds, Uh, grizzly bear, pronghorn, elk, salmon, clouds of birds so thick that uh, they darken the sky. And so in changing all of this, um, we've really depleted that richness of life. We've exchanged that uh, for this very uh, industrial kind of agriculture. Yeah. Okay, well, let's leave, let's leave California because you go around the world in your book. But one of the most interesting stories, something I was really fascinated by, was a place called Thornton Creek in Seattle mm-hmm. and uh, a restoration project there. And, and something that I you know, was really unaware of, but I found really interesting, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, is the hyporheic zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, 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 could you explain what that is? Because that was really interesting. Sure. Yeah, so I mean, Seattle, like many cities, has either put its creeks and pipes and buried them or uh, straightened them into channels. Uh, So there are these very straight flowing things. And, you know, that tends to create fast water because the natural shape of a river is more of an S. And so then it starts cutting down into the soil and people are concerned about the erosion. And so then they pave it or put sandbags or something. Um, And so you just end up with this water channel that is really not at all a living system. And Thornton Creek was flooding nearby homes and a road and a school almost every year. Uh, So the city was trying to figure out how to stop the flooding. And because they have endangered salmon in their creeks or endangered salmon should be in their creeks, they have a mandate that they need to try to help salmon whenever they do a creek restoration project. So basically, one of the biologists working for the city realized that the reason a lot of creek restoration projects weren't doing very well was because they were ignoring this thing called the hyperreic zone. And basically, um, you know, we've talked about surface water and groundwater. The hyperreic zone is sort of a ecotone. That's a space in between surface water and groundwater underneath a creek or a river. And so water is moving from the surface down and from the groundwater up, but it's also moving laterally uh, along the same path of the creek on top, but orders of magnitude more slowly because it's moving through soil and rock. And the hyperreic zone is sort of like our gut. Um, And, you know, we've been learning in recent years about how if our gut microbiome, you know, the little microbes who live in our gut 
if, if it's not very diverse, then we can have a lot of illnesses. And it's very similar to the situation with the stream if uh, because there's all kinds of important biological and chemical processes that happen in the hyperreic zone. So if the hyperreic zone isn't there, or if the microbes aren't there, these kind of cycling nitrogen, phosphorus, and carbon cycles aren't able to happen, food generation, water cleaning, et cetera. So this biologist, Catherine Lynch, um, realized that in a fast water and urban creek situation that had scoured away all the soft material at the bottom of the stream where the hyperreic zone exists. And I should add the hyperreic zone also exists laterally. So out into the floodplains. And so in a creek that might be like 30 feet beyond the banks and for a large river uh, could be up to a mile on either side. So it, it's really a large feature. And so in doing their restoration project to try to help flooding, they decided to do this first in the world experiment to restore um, and repopulate a missing hyperreic zone in an urban creek. So they, they bought out houses from willing sellers over a period of about 20 years, people whose homes kept flooding continually uh, to make more lateral space. And then they also added about eight feet of material at the bottom of the stream to recreate all of this missing hyperreic zone material. Uh, and then they did a lot of modeling and experiments with placement of logs and rocks and to try to ensure that the water was moving down into the hyperreic zone as it would in a, in a natural state. And well, let me just add, um, this is a like 11 mile long creek and the projects they did you know, together, two projects were 1600 feet. So it's so small in the larger scheme of things, but doing historical ecology, they found these places uh, that were historical floodplains. So that's why they continued to flood. Uh, and they were these kind of pinch points. And so in fixing those, they had kind of an outsized impact. And since they've done this project, um, the area has not flooded. And they also did... Um, three major scientific experiments to kind of show that this really cutting edge thing that they had done worked. And so one was the, the physical monitoring, you know, checking to see if the water was in fact moving down into the hyperreak zone. And they found that it was um, 89 times more than before the project, which sounds really, really amazing, but you consider that there basically was no hyperreak zone before the project. So that's had a big impact. How did they go about um, restoring the microbial life down there? So basically, um, ecologists have kind of had this attitude of like, if we build it, they will come. Like all we have to do is restore the habitat and make it look more homey and the critters will come. But what they realized is in a really urbanized area, you know, your headwaters may be a Home Depot parking lot. And so... You know, there are going to be no microbes uh, or not none, but like very not that diversity. So you might have to actually bring them from elsewhere. And so that's what they did. They they found these they had these little tubes that were kind of like nets and they put them into the hyperreic zone in a more rural creek that's nearby with kind of similar characteristics. And they kept them there for a period of time. They let the microbes and invertebrates get in there. 
Uh, and then they, you know, check some at the lab to find out who had come along, and then they stuck them into the hyperreic zone of the Seattle project and left them there for a little while to let the critters disperse. And they found that the restored sections have seven times more crustaceans, worms, and insects, and much greater species diversity. So it worked. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that's an amazing story. They also did a chemical study. Um, urban streams are really subject to pollution. Um, yeah. And they found 1,900 different pollutants had run off the pavement into the creek. And by spending just like three hours in a 15-foot stretch of the hyperreic zone, the chemicals, 78% of the chemicals were reduced by at least half. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, just the 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 power of the awesome machinery of nature when we stop messing with it uh, never ceases to amaze me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, machinery and nature, uh, the ultimate water masters are beavers, <laughs> and you you do you devote quite a section of your book to this, which was really interesting and made me think. You know, what was the what was North America like? you know, a thousand years ago before we came and, you know, almost exterminated all the beavers. What was it like? And describe to us what, what we know uh, that the natural water systems were like under the, the workmanship of the beavers. Yeah, it was a much soggier, boggier place. Um, people think that uh, 10% of North America was actually beaver-created wetlands. And so, you know, beavers are great at slowing water with their dams and by holding water on the land, um, you know, that gives it more time to move underground and therefore uh, to raise the groundwater table and be available to uh, streams uh, throughout drier seasons. And, you know, this could become particularly important as climate change progresses and our snowplacks and glaciers are melting. Um, so beaver ponds are a different way uh, to keep water on the land longer and make it available into the dry season. Yeah, and there are actually people that are, you know, putting beavers in sometimes sometime secretly into <laughs> places. Uh, could you tell us a bit about those stories? Sure. Well, let me backtrack for a minute. Um, we don't really understand what the landscape looked like uh, when there were beavers on it because the trappers, the European trappers came across the continent first and killed most of the beavers. And so by the time settlers came, mostly the beavers were gone and their wetlands were drying out. And so it's an adjustment for us now to think, okay, well, what does land look like with a beaver? And in fact, um, beaver wetlands look messy to our eyes because we're used to these really um, straightened stream channels with all the trees cut and everything is very neat and tidy, but actually not a functioning system. But, you know, beaver ponds, that complexity is great for so many different species, and um, they all play a really important role in, in keeping the system functioning. So people started to realize that in the early 20th century, and there were some beaver relocations into headwaters and more wild places starting in the 1920s in, in rural Idaho and in rural California. 
Um, and by the mid-century, people were even parachuting beavers into these um, backwoods areas where they didn't have roads. Uh, and they were doing that because they understood that beavers healed stream systems and made them better for fish. And so, you know, fast forward to the modern era and starting in the 1990s in Washington state, uh, people started relocating so-called problem beavers uh, from areas where they were having uh, conflicts with people into more remote areas where they could help to heal systems. Yeah, and uh, that was an illustration you had in your book of the parachuting beaver. <laughs> that was pretty hilarious and interesting. Yeah, it's, it's very, very cute. Um, the, the beavers were in a crate that was designed to deconstruct upon landing. So um, as far as I know, um, there was only one casualty during their efforts. So yeah, pretty, pretty successful. Um, and, you know, another thing that's really interesting is in the UK, they had killed all of the beavers 400 years ago. So they've been completely gone from the UK for 400 years. And now they're starting to reintroduce them. Um, but unlike in the Western US, there they're introducing them to help with flooding. And, you know, I, I like this example because it's counterintuitive to what a lot of people think. Like people think that beavers cause flooding. Um, but in fact, what they do is they slow water. So if you have a lot of water from a big storm, if it's moving through a beaver dam, this, the water will ultimately move downstream, but more slowly. And so that reduces the flood peak, um, the height of the water. And so, because it's it's going downstream over a longer period of time. And so that reduces flooding uh, all along the path where uh, there are a lot of towns right next to creeks and rivers. Yeah, the beavers had the slow water concept down long ago. They did, yes. And they're very good at it. If you're just joining us, our guest is environmental reporter and author Erica Geis, and we're talking about her new book, Chronicling the Slow Water Movement. It's called Water Always Wins. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our visit with Erica Geis, author of the new book, Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. You, you travel all over the world in your book. Uh, one of the most interesting stories to me uh, that I was completely unaware of was in, in Iraq, in ancient Mesopotamia there. Uh, you, you talked about a, a wetlands there that Saddam Hussein had actually kind of made war on. Could you just briefly tell us a bit about that place? Because it's really special. Yeah, the Mesopotamian marshes uh, in Iraq and Iran are thought to be the cradle of civilization, um, perhaps the Garden of Eden from the Bible. And it's an incredibly rich environment uh, fed by rivers coming down from, from Turkey and the mountains in Kurdistan uh, at the, the top of Iraq. And there are people called the marsh dwellers who have lived on top of the water, lived with the wetlands, uh, harvesting fish and reeds and other things that they need from it for 9,000 years. 
They were actually the, the precursors to the famous uh, Sumerian civilization. And, you know, many, many civilizations have come and gone from this area, some of them using irrigation and taking some of the water from the marshes. But these civilizations would then fall and the water would retake its marshes. So it's a really interesting example. And then, yeah, the mo most recently, um, Saddam Hussein, uh, some of the people who are against him were hiding out in the marshes. And so in retribution, he had levees built to block water from going there and actually drained more than 90% of them. And the marsh dwellers actually had to leave and go to cities like Babylon and Baghdad uh, for the first time ever. And they lived there for a while. Um, and then after the fall of Saddam Hussein, they returned and busted holes in the levees and the water came back and they started up their life again. Um, but unfortunately, this area does have ongoing threats from upstream dams. So Turkey in particular uh, has built a ton of dams because it's expanding agriculture into its eastern area. And uh, there are also upstream dams in Iran, and these are uh, depriving Iraq and Syria of, of water, uh, including these wetlands. So that's, that's the current threat to this 9,000-year-old way of life. Yeah, and uh, boy, upstream dams and agriculture sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk about some lessons we can learn from these ancient cultures. Uh, you also did some traveling to Peru, and the Incas did a lot of amazing water works of their own. Could you tell us a bit about what you learned there? Yes, yeah, so Peru is actually one of the six places on Earth where complex civilizations emerged, as well as you know Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley, China. And the reason for that was trying to finesse water because like California, um, parts of Peru have um, a, you know, a long dry season and a short wet season. And so the cultures that innovated really intriguing ways to manage water in Peru date back to 4,600 years ago. The Inca were only about 500 years ago, so they were the kind of latest, uh, <laughs> latest in, in that trend. But one that I looked at that uh, I found really interesting was from about 1400 years ago by the Wari people. And uh, they lived in the Andes mountains of Peru, they farm. And uh, there are in fact, three, at least three villages today where their descendants are still practicing this technique. And uh, now um, the downstream cities are looking to restore this technique throughout the Andes to uh, capitalize or you know, make more of, of this innovation. So it's called um, Amunas and Amuna means to retain. And basically it's a little canal that they built out of rocks to divert water from the stream during the high flows into these natural infiltration basins. So, uh, you know, kind of a, a bowl in the landscape uh, that's naturally porous. So then the water moves underground. And because it's going underground instead of on the surface, it moves much more slowly. And it emerges later uh, from springs um, further down the mountain from which they harvest it and then use it to irrigate their crops. And so by managing the water in this way, they are able to extend water availability into the dry season. And one of the communal farmers there told me, if we plant the water, we can harvest the water. 
So it's this really interesting idea of like, you know, with rights to water comes responsibility for, for managing it and for taking care of it. And they also have a communal system in which they all work together to take care of the, the components of the system and uh, also share the water among themselves. Yeah, it's fascinating. And uh, you also uh, discuss another ancient culture that did some amazing things with water, and that's in India. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the you know the British come along and uh, see see all this incredible engineering and decide that you know wetlands are wastelands, and let's get rid of this. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about what you what you learned from India. The system you're talking about is called the Eri system, E R I S, and that's a Tamil word uh, for tank. And when the British arrived, they estimated that there were 53,000 of these uh, tanks across South India. And it was really an ingenious system um, from the, the mountains, the ghats that run down the kind of the spine of the subcontinent down to the Bay of Bengal. And it's a series of basins um, where the upper side is open to allow the water to come in. And then there's a, a bund or a little wall on the lower side with a divot in that wall so that when it gets full, it can run over into the next basin down the mountain. And in areas where there were streams and rivers on the surface, these would be like little um, bowls off to the side. Uh, So when the river ran high, they would be capturing it as it went down and helping it move underground. Uh, And in areas where there wasn't surface water, they would connect each eddy to its neighbors to create a a system. And in this way, they could raise the groundwater table um, throughout their area because also like California, you know, they have their their monsoon, but then a long dry season. So this enabled them to to use the water throughout the year. And it it was kind of like... um, you know, not just making a pond for irrigation purposes, but they were actively inserting themselves into the hydrological cycle. And it um, required a really uh, sophisticated understanding of of how the water worked and moved. And um, yeah, the British destroyed a lot of it, but there are remnants of it remaining. And now people are are starting to restore it. And there were also a lot of um, really cool natural wetlands uh, the city I focus on in my book is Chennai, which is on the southeast coast. And it's seen like many places around the world and like many cities in India, really, really rampant unplanned development over the last 30 to 40 years. So that development has filled in uh, a lot of these wetlands uh, with the expected flooding. Uh, they had a really bad flood in 2015 that killed at least 400 people. And uh, also water scarcity, you know, Chennai made international headlines a few years ago when it ran out of water. But in fact, it runs out of water almost every summer. And it's because so many of these wetlands have been filled in and the water can't linger there anymore. So now there have been some court cases. Um, There's a NGO there called Care Earth Trust that's done a lot of work mapping these wetlands and uh, fighting for their rights in court and uh, requirements now that the the city starts to restore some of these. Let's come back to California and and your uh, San Francisco Bay Area uh, because that that was an interesting part to me to think about with climate change and rising sea levels. 
uh, you get across the point that we don't have a lot of time. And one of the things that uh, is happening in the Bay Area is trying to restore the wetlands around the Bay. Um, because they can act as such a great buffer against sea level rise. Um, tell us about some of the innovative things going on, you know, in your neck of the woods down there in the Bay Area. Sure. So San Francisco Bay has experienced a lot of uh, devastation to its wetlands. I think 90% of them were destroyed either uh, because people dumped soil on them and then built on top of them, uh, you know, or tried to drain them. So starting 30 or 40 years ago, you know, there was a salt industry where Cargill had these salt ponds and basically, you know, you'd put some seawater in there, you'd levy it off, and then you'd let the water evaporate and then you'd collect the salt. And that industry has largely gone elsewhere. And so these ponds were a good opportunity to restore the tidal marshes and people started doing that because they were concerned about endangered species and like recreating habitat and also more recreation area for people uh, near the water. But then about 10 years ago, the people, all of the scientists and government agencies who had been working on this realized, yeah, sea level rise is coming. And one estimate is that there could be five and a half feet of sea level rise here by 2100. And so the really amazing thing about tidal marshes is they can actually keep up with sea level rise. But to do this kind of minor miracle, you know, they can grow vertically. Uh, they need time, space, and sediment. Mm -hmm. And so time, you know, that means starting right now. And the restorationists have a target to restore as much as they can by 2030. Um, space is challenging because like so many places, many, many things have been built right at sea level on these filled in, you know, the wetlands that were filled in and even ones that still have the wetland, there might be something, you know, just behind it, like, a, you know, housing development or a business. And so really part of what, uh, the wetlands are doing when they grow vertically is they're also kind of moving. And so they, they need space for that. Uh, and so that's one reason why, you know, thinking of building even more things <laughs> close to the water on filled in wetlands at this point, which people are still proposing is really a bad idea. Um, but the third thing they need is sediment. And that's because um, the sediment kind of gets captured in the vegetation and ultimately the vegetation dies. And then that becomes part of the, the structure as well and more sediment comes along and new vegetation grows up through it. And so that's how it grows vertically. And our sediment is actually in deficit in San Francisco Bay. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, you know, the sediment that would be building up the marshes comes from two directions. It comes from the rivers that are flowing down into the bay and it comes uh, from the tides. And so on the riverside, uh, you know, we've dammed and changed a lot of the rivers. And so that's blocking a lot of the sediment that would naturally end up in the bay. And on the tidal side, um, we've, we're doing a lot of dredging uh, to make areas open for shipping. And because of this history of filling in the bay and a lot of the pollution that happened, there have been requirements to dump that extra material that's dredged out in the ocean to make sure that it doesn't harm animals who are living in the bay. 
but people are realizing now that we need a little bit more nuanced perspective. And so there's, um, there's a group that's working on changing these regulations to try to, you know, test the sediment, make sure it's not polluted, and then um, experiment with different ways to make that sediment available to the natural systems that are, that are building up the marsh. So it's complicated, but really, really interesting. Well, we're about out of time, uh, and we've only touched on uh, a few of the wonderful things in your book. And like I said, uh, for those of you listening to this, you need to read the book because there's so much more to it. But before we let you go, uh, now that you've spent all of this time researching and writing this this book, um, Water Always Wins, uh, what what's like the big takeaway for you uh, as as a person personally um, from from this? What, how do you feel about water now? Uh, as compared to before you started this? It's made me a lot more curious about water myself. Uh, you know, I like to hike a lot. Um, I like to do urban hikes also through the city. And it's just made me wonder, you know, oh, what's water doing? And I notice little signs of water where before maybe I wasn't aware of them. And and when I see a river system, I understand by looking at it more, you know, what state is it in and what does it need um, what's going wrong? I, you know, that's not to say that I myself am, am an expert, but um, I've developed more of an eye for it, and uh, I, I enjoy learning more about it. Um, I feel cautiously hopeful um, because these projects are really empowering. You know, climate change can feel so overwhelming, like there's, you know, we're waiting for international leaders to agree on. <laughs> cuts to emissions. Um, but these are projects that people can do within their own communities. Water is local and there are things you can do in your own community to make your local environment uh, safer from both flood and water scarcity. And there's also um, you know, a carbon storage component in wetlands. Uh, they can store more carbon dioxide than forests by a factor of three or five. Um, and so you're also doing something to reduce climate change. So I think that's exciting. And, you know, it's slow going in terms of um, getting people to understand how effective the, working with nature and giving water systems space to work can be. But uh, there's a lot of movement, even at national governments, I think of Canada and Kenya and the United States, uh, where people are seeking to make more space for this and to make this more of, of a common practice. So it's early days, but it is gaining momentum. And I, I find that encouraging. Well, Erica, guys, uh, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. Uh, to talk about this, this amazing journey you went on and, and for writing this incredible book, Water Always Wins, uh, one of the most important books I've read in many years. Thank you so much for having me on, Dave. And if people want to find out more, I have uh, created a, a website at slowwater.world. Thanks again to our guest, journalist Erica Geis, author of the new book, Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. You can find it at most major booksellers or order it at your locally owned bookstore. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. 
We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schultz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot.